0: Welcome to Sport Management Review Insights. I'm your host, Vitor Sobral. Once in a while, I'm sure we all check the news and find one of our favourite athletes has said something really stupid, racist or homophobic on social media. Like Portuguese winger Bernardo Silva using a racially insensitive character in banter with his teammate. No, Bernardo, no. And in this episode, we're going to discuss athlete transgressions on social media and the impact this has on consumers, or as some of us might refer to them, fans. And joining us to discuss this is a returning guest. She was the star of the episode on female sport fan apparel. She's assistant professor at Temple University. It's Katie Swanson. Welcome, Katie.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, it's great to have you back. We had such a a great time chatting last time. And since you published another article, we thought, well, we have to get Katie back, don't we?
1: Yeah, that's awesome.
0: Katie and co-author Lorena Haber recently published, So Begins the Demise of Superman from Metropolis, Consumers' Twitter Reactions to an Athlete's Transgression. So, Katie, I can think of so many examples of this happening. Edinson Cavani's a, a recent one. Israel Folau, for the Australian audience, would know. I, I'm sure we all have a, a story where we've gotten up and looked at our news feed, Twitter feed, and said, Oh, no, not you. How does this research that you've done help us understand what was happening in these instances and importantly, their implications?
1: You know, this study stemmed from a broader study that was my dissertation and being able to use the software program that we had, we were able to look at these transgressions that happen at the time that they kind of unfolded, which I think again, typically it's Um, You know, we can look at social media reactions or sometimes we might have to look back and get, you know, kind of more of a reflective piece. But being able to look at the way people are talking about transgressions as they unfold really provide us insight into, well, how can they be better managed? Then if we know or we have a sense of what those responses might be, how can we create statements? How can we enforce penalties in ways that, again, will be appropriate, not only for, you know, the idea of social change for the act that was committed, but also in a way where consumers will be satisfied with that, uh, the managing of the transgression as well.
0: I guess so many times the athlete thinks that they're being hard done by as well, that they didn't, uh, they didn't deserve what they're getting. So did the the research coming about because you may have felt that when, when, when you've seen it before?
1: We actually, myself and Lorena Haber and Orlin Haber, Uh, have talked about this concept of serendipity in qualitative research and this is kind of a circumstance where that happened because this study wasn't going to be part of my dissertation it was a scenario where i was collecting tweets from the toronto blue jays over their 2017 season and when this happened i was like i can pull out that data again because we have this software uh the vista software program that collected all these tweets, and we can look at this specifically. So it was just one of those circumstances where, you know, I didn't really know much about, the, you know, the transgression literature before I started. But when that happened, I thought, well, we can really take this and deconstruct what people are saying. And that software program allotted us the opportunity to, you know, look at this and take it out as it, it occurred. So I think in this case with Kevin Pilar, he was actually very regretful and apologetic in his actions. And he actually did more than just the apology. He went out and he you know, did some training and he um, became a little bit more of an, an advocate. However, that really wasn't pushed by the organization. There really wasn't much spotlight on the work that he had done post transgression. And other literature suggests that actually that work that comes afterwards, the community service, the advocating, really is a positive element for consumers. So it was quite interesting to see that, you know, that was happening, but it wasn't really being promoted by the organization.
0: I'll get to the context uh, in a second. Uh, I just want to get back to the, the method you used and, and the framework really first. Uh, you use critical discourse studies, uh, which I'm sure is not just reading angry Twitter exchanges. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about what that is and uh, how it was useful for you to, to understand what was going on here?
1: Yeah, so I spent essentially the, the four and a half years of my dissertation learning and reading about critical discourse studies. So it took me a long time to wrap my head around. But, um, you know, it's essentially this idea that um, critical discourse studies, critical discourse analysis, that that language is not just language, that language has these underlying meanings associated with them and they create social reality. And so it's really looking at the way that conversations, texts, written words, images, body language is not just taken at face value, that we are, it's filled with power. And the way that we talk, the language we use, the things we say, the images we see are all embedded in power. And so using that as the structure was kind of this idea that again, the homophobic slur was a single word. The responses in the tweets are 180 characters but there's power and there is meaning and they can be reiterating an exclusive sport environment or they can be challenging it in just the language choices they they are using. And so that really became kind of the structure of what is a power relations embedded in these everyday language use? And again, is it reinforcing or challenging these kind of dominant practices in sport?
0: In a basic sense, it seems to be that the word or the word being used has a lot more power than just the letters on the screen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, in the paper, we talk about, uh, we use Van Dyke's ideological structure. So we even break down like pronouns. Are they saying we, that that's a sense of belonging. Are they saying you disassociating themselves from the organization? Are they saying I, so, you know, and that, it's a very, it's the analysis, critical discourse analysis is a very time consuming <laughs> analysis. That's for sure. But taking you know, individual words and breaking down what possible meaning could be behind them and what that means in the sense of the, the tweet and then in the sense of the context. So it really is a multi-layered analysis. But again, it results in some really in-depth finding.
0: Yeah, you said it, it. it's incredibly time consuming, but you did have that software. Tell us a bit. You mentioned the software a couple of times. Tell us a bit more about that and how it works and how it helped you heal.
1: I like to say that Vista was created by uh, the Habers. I like to refer to them as that when I talk about vistas. So it was really, uh, I think, the concept that for qualitative researchers, it's very challenging to get large sets of data that you can get through in you know a, a timely fashion. It really, you know, the more data you have, the a more qualitative data you have, the longer it's going to take. So actually, sifting through all that data can become really unfeasible, especially when you're trying to get your your publications out. So this software program really allows um, Vista Visual uh, say Visual Twitter analytics uh, is a software program. And it essentially allows you to collect tweets, whether it's through a hashtag, whether it's through a handle, whether it was tweeted by someone over a certain time period. So for my dissertation, I actually collected all the tweets from the Toronto Blue Jays. I think I had about 11 either handles or hashtags over the 2017 season, and I also did the same for the Toronto Raptors for the 2017, 2018 season. But what Vista does is it automatically collects any tweet that contains the hashtag, the handle, and then it also does a sentiment analysis. So it codes it whether it's positive, negative, or neutral. Now that does require a little bit of um, manual, I would say refinement as well, because again, in sport we use words that in society, something like fight, in society is typically bad, but in sport, if we would say fight till the end, they put up a good fight, the tone's a little bit different. But again, that, that software allowed me through again, just two hashtags in one handle, allow me to collect 850,000 tweets. And then because the software is also visually represented, I could go down to a minute and see what happened. So it, it gives you yeah, a visual representation of the data along with a sentiment analysis showing you how much is positive, negative, neutral. And for this specific uh, study, essentially, then I could search for specific terms within that data set and narrow it down to the week that it happened. So what it really does is it allowed me to to work with a large body of data to find really meaningful and purposeful data. And so I know sometimes, you know, we have to sample and do random sampling or pick things here and there without getting the full story. So this really allows you to take the entire context and meaningfully pull out the data, which is, again, really wonderful as a qualitative researcher.
0: And as you, you're piling all this data, Kevin Pillar, very famous Toronto Blue Jays baseball player, uh, an excellent uh, player as well, and loved by the fans, does something that's homophobic. So was that the serendipitous moment? you are like, oh, now I can look at this from a different perspective.
1: Yeah, I actually, when I was collecting the data, I essentially... you would watch the like highlights of every game that happened that season Um, because I didn't I didn't have time to watch like a three hour baseball game you know so I would watch the highlights and I would make notes of everything that would kind of happen during a game if there was like somebody got injured or if there was um, you know a big play I would make notes so that when I went back to the tweets I could contextualize what are they talking about what happened on that day so when this happened It was something I wrote down and I circled because I thought, well, this could be a really interesting, just something really interesting to look at and see how people responded. And again, initially, it wasn't even going to be part of my dissertation, but we just thought that, you know, the data was so rich and there was, uh, you know, it's an important piece of work. So we brought it in. So it really was, again, that case of I'm just collecting data over the season, something happened. And because we collected it, because we had the software program, we could narrow in on that event and explore it that way.
0: And after that painstaking analysis, we all, as qualitative researchers, which I'm, I'm one as well, it is painstaking. It is, it's a long road. But after all that, what did you find?
1: You know, we kind of went through and had to clean the data, make sure that we only had the tweets from consumers because obviously it collected stuff from media and, you know, other stakeholders. So we just try to narrow that down to consumers. And we used, uh, Kevin Pillar was typically referred to as Superman because he played center and he would always die for catches, like really Kind of known by that, fans would create signs and, and go to games with, you know, Superman or whatever. So we decided that we should kind of use that brand image association as we talk about the way people reacted to what happened. And so again, in, in critical discourse analysis, using the discourses of, you know, systems of thought related to Superman and then kind of show how there was push and pull on both sides. And so we found that, again, some people, as soon as it happened, they were upset. And so they kind of, you know, pushed against this idea that he was Superman, that Superman's a role model, that he's, you know, for everyone and people saying, or you're not Superman, not if you use language like that, that's inappropriate. So really saying that he, in that way, is not a superhero, is not someone to idolize. On the other hand, people, again, using that language of we would also try and humanize him we make mistakes. It happens to everyone. It's one word. It's not a big deal. So we really saw an interesting kind of an ideological stance of inclusion and resistance to homophobia in sport and others where there's really a downplaying of it saying it's a word, it's not a big deal. And then we also looked at, again, this kind of the repercussions that happened. Again, he was suspended for two games. So we looked at the responses to that as well. And what we found was, again, most people felt that it was, sufficient that he should have been suspended and that was the appropriate way to go about it others felt that it was um not fair in the terms that it was too severe that it was okay now we're we're politically correct now we're going to suspend someone for saying a word and then others who'd said and it was really interesting that you know technically this is his job and in the workplace if anybody used that language they'd be fired they maybe they'd be more than suspended but here they talk about the two games being kind of like a slap on the wrist. It's not really that much of a penalty. And then the last part being the way that consumers kind of, or the fans spoke to each other. So again, you are too sensitive. You know, I'm kind of reinforcing this again, that language, the meaning behind language isn't powerful or that you know using a homophobic slur isn't a big deal because it's sports and that's what happens. And then others saying, this is a big deal it's not idea of freedom of speech that like these words are powerful and they are intentional and that they again this is not a place for them so we kind of saw three different elements happening there uh which again made it really interesting to contextualize it within kind of the the superman universe
0: and how did this advance our understanding how how did this what does it all mean in the end
1: yeah, I think what we found was that, you know, the responses for and against what we saw was typically more people were satisfied with the punishment with the apology with, you know, the suspension than not so we're seeing, at least from, you know, the consumer perspective here that this inclusive culture Maybe there's a little bit more of a push for it, recognizing that, you know, homophobia, homophobic language is not OK in sport, that they're, they're looking to create a more inclusive environment. However, there were still those who were resisting that, who are saying that sport is a place where, you know, political correctness shouldn't exist. And so what's interesting with a transgression like this is that they are now it's the organization who has to take a political stance. So it's not a criminal stance, it's not that they did something against the law, it's that as an organization, who are you and what do you stand for? And so there was some of that with the apology. Our comment was that we really thought they could have done more. Again, Pilar went out and did this training and did, you know, became an advocate. But to say, you know, to issue an apology and move on, are they really an inclusive environment? How can they really put some more, you know, strength? behind the values they have as an inclusive organization. Uh, So again, recognizing that even after the transgressions over the ability to follow through and reinforce those values and illustrate that and not just saying, but doing becomes really important. And the other thing we found was again, when the transgression happened a lot of the immediate reactions were calling for suspension were calling for more action. So the apology came and then about two hours later, the suspension came. So our other kind of outcome of this is that if organizations, understanding things take time, release these statements at once, that this was you know, a bad thing, that you know, this is inappropriate and they're suspended, it can release some of that negative conversation that happens after that apology isn't enough. So being able to kind of frame everything as, this is our response to the transgression and this is the action, can allow people to feel like, okay, now this is handled and we can kind of move forward. So having those come at the same time would also be beneficial.
0: So what the sport organization does can also influence the critical discourse in the aftermath of a transgression.
1: Yes, absolutely. And again, you know, they I we know now probably more than ever, general organizations, but sport organizations you know, having values of inclusivity and diversity, and they're working towards being organizations like that. But if it's something that they're saying and they're not doing, then that becomes a problem. And we've seen that time and time and time again. So recognizing that in order to actually, you know, materialize and to to manifest these values, it has to be more than just statements.
0: So let's say that you were put in charge of the MLB or another sport organization, let's say the MLB, and someone like Kevin Pillar does something similar, what would you advise, Katie? How would you handle that situation?
1: I mean, the first thing is definitely to, in writing the statement, the statement that goes out is to be cautious of the only, your own language that you're using. You know, I think that Blue Jay's an interesting tactic where we're disappointed in his actions, but he's a high character individual. So they still protected themselves associating with the positive aspects that he was. And then again, uh, going against the action. So I think the, the most important thing to do is again, make that stance, make that organizational stance that this is not okay. And this is not appropriate and follow that up with the disciplinary action to the athlete when that is done. And again, I understand that some organizations don't want to kind of relive the transgressive, the transgressive act over and over. But again, this happened. So here is our plan. Here are our steps to you know, maybe check our own organization, check our players, check our coaches, check you know, the people who just work in our organization and we're going to do training together. We are going to you know, add some values. We're maybe going to add another piece to our strategic plan. You know? So we're actually going to embody and create change if this is a problem. If it is, again, not representative of the organization they're trying to be I think that's a challenging part is the player themselves and the organization and being, uh, you know, the player being a representative of that organization, but not always having control over individual people. So I think it has to be quick. The response has to be quick. There has to be disciplinary action and following that some sort of demonstration that it's not just this was bad, but this is what as an organization, what we're going to do to ensure that this doesn't happen again.
0: Should there also be a consideration, and definitely not an excuse, but uh, some kind of explanation when it happens in a in a with a player whose cultural background this kind of thing is a bit more normalised? Like I think of the Edinson Cavani uh, uh, issue, where he used a word that's completely normal in Uruguay but is absolutely racist in in the English language. Yeah,
1: I mean, it becomes quite complicated, right? When it's you're crossing cultures and what is and is not acceptable there, and I think really with social media, your leeway of a transgression, whether it was intended or not, is very, very, very small. And that's part of, again, the the work that we did is recognizing that to a lot of people, this wasn't a transgressive act. It, and that's why the understanding, the interpretation of language is so important, because for some, it was nothing. And in, in that case, again, it can be this is a common term, this is nothing, but for others, it can be like, this is incredibly inappropriate. And so trying to understand how that language can reinforce either of those viewpoints, uh, again, and then using that language and crafting statements and trying to, again, whether that's explaining it or you know condemning it, it really complicates things when the language itself is up to interpretation of how severe it is.
0: Katie, I think it's absolutely fascinating what you've done there. And I'm sure just the tip of the iceberg, there'd be lots more cases to look at for the future as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, athletes, organizations themselves, they never, uh, there'll always be more to study.
0: Thanks so much, Katie.
1: Great, thank you.
0: And thanks for listening to Sport Management Review Insights. At the Sport Management Review website, you'll find all the latest research being published, including the article discussed in this episode. So begins the demise of Superman from Metropolis consumer's Twitter reactions to an athlete's transgression from volume 23 issue five. That's it for this episode, but take a look. There's plenty more that you can download to your favorite podcast player until then it's bye for now.